It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be looking at the latest Brexit developments during so-called Hell Week and digging into the latest row over universal credit. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Brussels Bureau Chief Alex Barker, columnist Robert Shrimsley and Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all those usual channels to receive it every Saturday. Downing Street predicted this was going to be the week from hell for Brexit, and in some ways it was. The tempo was up significantly in Westminster as Theresa May has begun to sell those final round of compromises she'll need to seal an exit deal with the EU. It's probably going to involve some form of customs union for that infamous Northern Irish backstop, something both the right wing of the Conservative Party and the Democratic Unionist Party are firmly against. And Brussels negotiations have been in lockdown as they're trying to sort out those finer details. George Parker, let's begin with the view from Westminster. So this has been a crucial week as it was sold, but again, as so often is the case in Brexit, nothing has really actually happened apart from a cabinet meeting on Thursday. Lots of talk and angry briefings against proposed compromises, but fundamentally, we were where we were the week before. Well, I suppose that's true up to a point, and Alex will talk about this a bit later, but I think the weekend just coming up is going to be the crucial moment where these talks really get down to the nitty-gritty and the possibility of some kind of breakthrough on the withdrawal treaty. So as you say, during the week, nothing much happened apart from the fact you can start to see the battle lines hardening at Westminster around what we think will be the outline of this deal. In particular, you had Theresa May's partners in government, the uh, Democratic Unionist Party, threatening effectively to bring her down and possibly her government down if they think that Northern Ireland's being treated any differently to the rest of the UK as part of this exit deal. And separately, you've got the Tory Eurosceptics really mobilising on this very important point for them, which is if we're going to have some sort of extended customs union arrangement for a temporary period after we leave, there's got to be a firm end date on that. They can't accept processes or steps to departure or whatever else. They want a firm date to show that we're finally breaking our ties with the EU in that respect. So those are the two things that have happened. But I think everyone's really looking to the weekend to see whether Ollie Robbins, the chief negotiator, and Michel Barnier can try and hammer something out. Well, this is a good moment to punt the fantastic profile of Ollie Robbins that you and Alex have written in this weekend's FT magazine, which is definitely worth checking out for the man who has done so much to knit together the Brexit detail and lots of great quotes and all the rest of it. But Alex, give us the view from Brussels. What has or has not happened this week in the talks? You know, Ollie Robbins and Sabina Weyand, who is Michel Barnier's deputy negotiator, have basically been locked in a room with all their teams, drafting what will emerge, hopefully, on Monday as a final withdrawal agreement, the treaty, fully drafted. And alongside it, something that looks a bit more like the kind of skeleton of a declaration about what UK-EU future relations should be like. 
Now, they are close in that they have a decent idea of how the different parts of this are fitting together. The drafting hasn't finished. There's a lot of really difficult issues still left open, but it's probably doable. Really, the risk is all the politics outside the room, because ultimately, this is only going to gel if they've got political clearance, and if Theresa May, in particular, is able to feel confident she can sell this and get it through her cabinet and stand up next week and basically make the pitch for why these kind of concessions are necessary for the UK to leave the EU smoothly. And if you recall the last time the Brexit negotiation really got to this level of tension, it was in December when they were discussing the outlines of this withdrawal agreement. And there, there were a number of agreements between Ollie Robbins and Sabina that basically unravelled because of the DUP, because Theresa May wasn't happy with certain language. And so you've got to be very cautious in the next few days about kind of deal done reports, because it's a process. And until that text emerges, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. So let's just talk about this customs union for a moment, because this seems to be, as the issue is nailing down to Alex, that as part of the Northern Irish backstop, the UK would remain in a customs union with the EU. Now, that is a change because the EU was proposing that it would just be Northern Ireland. So there has been a shift to accepting the whole of the UK would be in that. But the key thing seems to be about a date, because Brexit, as George was saying, what that clear point which we've left, we're no longer part of close trading ties with the but the EU wants a backstop that's always going to be there to ensure there's never a hard border. Where do you see that playing out? Because the sense has always been the EU will not do a deal that does not have a backstop that is there under all circumstances. That's definitely right. And I'm afraid it gets very, very complicated once you start talking about which backstop's going to be used and what the kind of limits are and what's binding and what's not. But I'll have a go at trying to explain this. The core demand of the EU is that there is something that's indefinite, that would survive even if there's no future agreement between the UK and the EU after the transition ends, and that is specific to Northern Ireland. That pretty much is probably going to remain in the withdrawal treaty. So that would mean, as a last resort, Northern Ireland would be aligned with the EU's standards and regulation for goods, and it would be part of the EU's customs territory. So it would be excluded from any future UK trade deals, and there'd be checks on the Irish Sea. Now, the UK has said, look, the customs part of that in particular is completely unacceptable to us, and we want it to be UK-wide. There will be some references in the withdrawal treaty to it being UK-wide, but to make that happen, for a UK-wide customs union, you need another treaty after Brexit that will make it kind of operational. So part of it is going to be a, a political promise rather than a binding legal agreement. And that may be difficult for Theresa May to sell because she may have to accept the idea that in certain circumstances, Northern Ireland would be split off from the mainland UK in terms of customs. The second problem she has is the customs union would have to last for as long as the backstop lasts. And putting a time limit on it would make it a kind of transition, but you'd still need a backstop for Northern Ireland. So that's a big problem. And if you just 
make a mechanism that makes the backstop expire. At the moment, there's a new agreement between the UK and the EU. It looks like the EU would have a lock on Britain having an independent trade policy and remaining united at the same time. So that's pretty hard for Brexiters. So you've got dilemmas on both sides. On the one hand, it's not a clean cut customs union. On the other hand, it will look to Brexiters like we're entering something that will be a lock on Britain's independent trade policy in future. And George, this is where the problem lies for Theresa May at home, that this fudge that's sort of being concocted at the moment, as Alex said, looks and feels a lot like a customs union. And that's problematic, A, for the right wing of the Conservative Party, which absolutely does not want to be in a customs union. People like Liam Fox, who envisaged this global Britain trading policy, that would be killed stone dead by this. But then it's also difficult for the DUP, who we've heard a lot from this week, who have become increasingly vocal against Theresa May, with even suggesting we may need to change leader. Yes, the problems are on both sides. As I was saying earlier, you've got the Eurosceptics who want to have a firm date before the 2022 election, when all ties are severed to the customs union and the single market. And you've got the DUP who are worried that Northern Ireland is going to be treated separately. And that really, I think, is the problem between now and getting any sort of agreement next week. As Alex said, it's the politics outside the room. What can Theresa May sell? Now, you can get so far in Brussels by getting so deep into the weeds of this that no one really understands what's going on. I think Alex think we made, might be at that point right now. Alex has just made a fantastic stab at explaining what the complexities of what people are discussing in Brussels over the weekend. The fact is most people will have lost the plot on this many weeks or even many months ago. And so you can get so far by confusing people by the terminology and by entering in review dates and transition periods and all the rest of it to fudge stuff. But in the end, if it looks like Northern Ireland is being treated differently, and if there's no firm end date for when Britain will definitely leave the customs union, then I think Theresa May has a big political problem on her hands. So the question that's, I think, going on at Westminster at the moment is... Will more people leave the cabinet over this? And will this turn into a leadership issue for Theresa May? And the names that have been talked about are Brexiters. So it's Penny Mordaunt, Esther McVeigh, even Andrea Leadsom, and even Dominic Raab are the names people are saying who may not be able to stomach this idea that we are in a customs union in the long time. If they do quit the cabinet, George, at some point next week or maybe over the weekend, it may be superseded by the time this podcast <laughs> comes out. Where does that leave the prime minister? Well, we were told yesterday that Andrea Leadsom, the leader of the House of Commons, and Esther McVeigh, the Working Pension Secretary, would be having difficult conversations and grappling with their conscience over the weekend. So watch this space as far as they're concerned. And in parentheses, it would be pretty damaging for Theresa May. There's a very small number of senior women, or women at all, actually, in her cabinet. And if you were talking about three women there who could leave, that would be a serious blow to Theresa May, obviously. Incidentally, those people were not in the room at this cabinet meeting. It was in a cabinet meeting on Thursday. And Theresa May had the people who she thinks she will be able to rely on to sell this deal. And you mentioned Dominic Raab, the Brexit secretary. Well, he was making a good stab at explaining the policy in the House of Commons on Monday. I think if he left, that would be a very serious blow to the government. I think Theresa May could probably survive one or possibly two more resignations by Eurosceptic ministers. But more than that, then she's into serious problems. And from the Brussels perspective, Alex, if the cabinet does start to come apart over this proposal, the EU's always had this sense that it wants to negotiate and help Theresa May within its own political considerations. But I think, as George just said, if Dominic Raab ended up quitting over this policy, it would surely create great issues for the negotiations, and particularly if the Conservative Party descends into a leadership contest. 
Well, yes. Feels to me like the patience has run a bit thin on the EU side in terms of trying to be careful or think about how they're approaching this in a way that would help the kind of good side and the Tory party as they would see it. And if we do have a situation where no agreement is reached by this weekend for whatever reason in British domestic politics, I suspect the EU leaders will take a pretty tough approach when they meet for their dinner on Wednesday night. And what they'll say is, well, look, you need to spend more time with our chief negotiator. And we were thinking about this summit in November. We're not going to have that anymore. And we'll see you again in December. I think the market reaction then would be pretty striking. And we'd be in a really quite serious and and dark period of this negotiation. People have always said, George, there could very well be a big crisis moment. And we sort of had that a bit last December when the first part of this deal came together. But I think Alex is completely right there that if there's another repeat of the Salzburg summit this Wednesday, then A, the prospects of a no-deal Brexit obviously will increase because time is running out. It will create problems for Theresa May. And as Alex said, one thing I think a lot of people in the FT building have been asking themselves is why hasn't there been more of a market reaction? And I guess the markets are maybe not following this in as much detail as people like you and I do. But if there is a blunt response then and there's no prospect of any progress till December, then I think it'll be hold on to your hats time. I think that's true. I think probably since we came back from the summer holidays, the markets have registered what's going on in Brussels and what senior politicians have been saying including Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Commission president, and various British government ministers, that substantial progress is being made and they think that a deal is close. Now, if at the end of this weekend of negotiations in the Berlinmont building in Brussels, progress hasn't been made and Theresa May has run into this political roadblock by her own Tory MPs and by the DUP and progress can't be made, then we are into very serious territory. I think the markets would take fright if the summit next week ends up with them saying that no sufficient progress has been made. Forget about the November Council, as Alex said. Then I think we'd be into quite a serious crisis. I thought, in a way, we had a mini crisis back at the Salzburg summit a few weeks ago, which I thought may help to clear the air slightly. But maybe we're going to need another one because this is how European negotiations usually end up. But Theresa May is talking to some fairly implacable people now, the DUP, not known for their flexibility, and a large number of her own party who, you know, for them, this is the reason they came into politics, to to take Britain out of the European Union. And finally, Alex, the chances of a no-deal Brexit, where are they at at the moment, would you say? Negotiators here are much more optimistic about bringing together a deal, and they've always seen the biggest risk being in Westminster. Whether that risk crystallises before the deal comes together or afterwards, I'm not sure, but... They certainly are very confident on this side of the channel that however bumpy a ride we have up to March 29th, that the UK in practical terms will really struggle to cope with a no-deal Brexit and that we may not even be able to do it even if the talks break down and the UK would be coming back to the table basically at some stage. I don't know how true that is, but that's certainly the sense you get here. And George, it's probably a bit premature to be talking about this, but one bit of reporting that we had in the FT this week was about Labour MPs and how they may view any deal. Because, of course, if we get through all this and Theresa May manages to get a deal, get her cabinet to agree to, as Alex says, the real danger is then the House of Commons and how you get this deal through MPs. 
One of our colleagues, Jim Picard, wrote this week that about 30 Labour MPs would be potentially minded to vote what we assume is against the party whip for a deal to avoid chaos or to avoid the accusation they're against Brexit or what have you. And you can begin to see a route through Parliament when you take some of those Labour MPs plus the Labour Brexiters minus the hardcore Tory rebellions. But the DUP, if they duck out of it as well, then it looks almost impossible. And then once again, if that deal does and get through it's the same questions no deal brexit leadership challenge all these delightful things yes i mean the role of the labor party will be fascinating in this end game but if you're theresa may or sitting in the government whips office to have the future of your government in the hands of unpredictable mps from a different party you're in a pretty dangerous situation They're i think downing street knows that very well. and i've said on many occasions on this podcast that for a long time the assumption was that they would need almost all the votes of Conservative MPs to be sure that we're getting this through. But I think you're right. I think they realise now there is an implacable hardcore of Eurosceptics. And we've interviewed Jacob Rees-Mogg today, who puts it at several dozen, who will vote against a Chequers-style deal. Then you're into the question of can you get enough Labour MPs together to support it? But that's a very precarious situation for the whips to be in. And one of the reasons why I think there's so much nervousness in number 10 this weekend as the final deal comes into view. For once, domestic policy reared its head this week. The cause to pause the universal credit welfare reforms have been growing, with MPs ranging from Jacob Rees-Mogg to former Prime Ministers John Major and Gordon Brown. Folks have been saying the government needs to rethink its national rollout of the new system. Across Whitehall, the concerns are growing that rolling out Britain's new welfare system to six million people could end up being a repeat of the poll tax debacle and inflict a heavy political price on the government, as well as creating much suffering across the country. Robert Shrims, let's just begin with an outline of universal credit. This was the reforms the Conservatives began in 2010. The idea was to simplify the welfare system from six working age benefits to one, but it hasn't quite gone to plan. No. The first thing that hasn't gone to plan is that it should already be entirely in place by now, and it's not even close to being so. I mean, the rollout is so slow that perhaps they were gambling everyone would be claiming their pension by the time they were supposed to be claiming in-work benefits. The truth is, this is a quite gobsmackingly complicated policy in which you roll together, I think it's six different benefits into one. It makes life a lot simpler for the benefit claimants in one sense, once it's all working smoothly, and might even encourage more people to claim benefits. But the problem is, it is massively complicated to migrate people to different benefits. It was created with an era of people being in a job for a long period of time and not really created for an era where people move work all of the time. Also, you have to fund these things. If you're dealing with benefit claimants, a small amounts of money can make an enormous amount of difference to them. And George Osborne in 2015, I think it was, raided the amount of money that was available for universal credit and therefore made it much less generous than it might otherwise have been. Factor into that quite staggering IT mistakes, which have made it not work even faintly feasibly until the last couple of years. And you have the beginnings of a major crisis. I mean, hardly anybody's on universal credit yet. The government has to start migrating millions of people. It expects up to 8 million people to be claiming universal credit by the time it's finished. I think we're just under a million now. So there's a ton of work to do. So this man again, it was an idea that Ian Duncan Smith created once he was booted out of the Conservative Party leadership 
back in 2003, he devoted essentially the next seven years of his life to investigating welfare, investigating poverty, and came up with this idea, the theory of universal credit. And I think very few people dispute that the theory of it is very good, as Robert was saying, the simplicity, and it would remove those potentially perverse incentives where through all the complexity of six different benefits, it's actually better to be on benefits than in work. Universal credit was meant to get rid of that, but it's always fallen down on this point of can you actually do it can it actually be implemented? And there's still not a lot of evidence that it can be. So one of the most difficult things in politics is to kind of reimagine what a political atmosphere was like in a previous era, perversely more so for ones that are quite recent. So we have to try and remember what it was like in the first two or three years of the coalition government that came in in 2010. And there was this peculiar narrative around the sort of principal members of the government, which was that because of the financial crisis, a lot of first principles had to be revisited in terms of public expenditure. And it became a kind of opportunity, as they saw it, to do quite radical reforms in some areas. Their word for it was ambitious. When we look back at it now, we might say brave in the sense of yes, minister, brave. And we might even say that it was hubris and a bit of a bravura attitude to trying to simplify a very complicated system when to do that, you've really got to be sure what you're doing and fund it properly. And of course, what's happened since is, as Robert's explained, it's got more complicated. It's been bedeviled by problems in the implementation and also it's been defunded. So you're now at risk of a political disaster for the current Conservative administration, not the one that started this story, because once the costs to ordinary families become clear of decisions that were taken in 2010, 2011, 2012. You're adding to the huge backlash against the Conservative austerity programme as it's seen. And this, I think, is the real danger for universal credit is less the kind of shambles element and more cuts, cuts and more cuts. You had this clash, Robert, between Ian Duncan Smith, who devised this policy in opposition and then became Work and Pension Secretary and began to implement it, and George Osborne, who was then the Chancellor, who was responsible for enacting the austerity agenda following the financial crisis. The challenge was George Osborne, I don't think, ever particularly believed in universal credit and didn't believe in Ian Duncan Smith's vision for it, and essentially used it as a fund for more welfare cuts, and that was particularly potent in 2015, when the Conservatives put through that budget that took $2 billion out of universal credit and therefore it really starts to give the scheme issues and Esther McVeigh who's the current work and pension secretary she admitted this week families could be poorer off under the new system and she reportedly told the cabinet that some families would be up to £200 a month worse off once the system is fully realised so there are these two separate elements one is do we simply need to put more money into it? The other one is, is it ever actually going to work along the terms it was originally defined? Okay. Well, I'm going to just dodge the second one entirely. Is it ever going to work? Uh, who the hell knows? Is Including ever, the National Audit Office. Ever, is is, is it ever know. going to work? And indeed, will it ever be implemented in the way that was first envisaged? Things just move too fast. What I think is absolutely clear is that the political problem the government has at the moment cannot hold, therefore they will cave in. And the only question is whether they have the political nous to cave in quickly. They have two choices. Either they have to put more money into it or they have to slow the rollout. One of the key points that's important in all of this is that nobody loses money being transferred from their existing benefits to universal credit at the moment of transfer. You don't go from one to the other and lose the £200 a month. 
that money becomes at risk if any of your material circumstances change. So if you are frozen in aspic, you won't be any worse off. But if you change job, have another child, move house, your hours change, that's when the new terms kick in. And that's where it could get very unpleasant very quickly. I mean, £200 a month is a hell of a lot of money to anybody who's on universal credit. And it's a lot of people as well. Yes. You know, the Resolution Foundation says that it's 3.2 million working families. And one of the structural problems that we know we've got in the UK UK is the number of people in poverty who are actually working. So it's a lot of people and it's a lot of people who are going to work, standing at the school gates, interacting with their fellow citizens and will be very angry. I think it was very interesting what happened in the general election in 2017. It was where the cuts to school budgets were starting to be felt on the ground. And it wasn't a big national issue in the election campaign. But a lot of people at sort of street level were very angry about it. And I think that's part of the problem with this story as well. John Major may or may not be right to say they're risking another set of riots like those that were clustered around objections to the poll tax back in his era. But there will be a lot of on-the-ground anger about it, and that could be very damaging for the government. And I think the really important thing is one of the fundamental changes in the nature of welfare It started with John Major with the creation of family credit, then under Gordon Brown it snowballs with working families tax credit, now working tax credit, and now universal credit. A lot of people who are receiving this are not the people who the Conservative Party might once have dismissed as the undeserving poor. Yes, this is not the shirkers, as George Osborne's revolting phrase. Yeah, The people who were never going to vote Conservative anyway, and therefore if you cut their benefit, leave aside the moral side, just talking about political calculations here, if you cut their benefit, it wasn't going to hurt you as the Conservative Party. A lot of the people who are going to be affected by the universal credit changes are actually people who are prepared and may indeed frequently vote conservative. They might be homeowners, they might be young families. In fact, the universal credit measures will hit homeowners more than they hit renters. So a lot of the people who will be caught up in this are people who are minded to vote conservative, especially with the changing demographics of the conservative parties. They push further out into towns and more working class communities, which they're trying to do. And that's why I think in the end, this cannot possibly hold. And the only question is, do we measure in days or weeks the speed of this climb down? I think there's a good chance we'll see the climb down in the upcoming budget. There's reports going round that the government may freeze its cuts to income tax, which were due to come in, and use the money instead to yeah, universal credit. You've got credit. to be careful with that. I mean, if you freeze all the cuts to income tax, some of those are at the lower end of the earning spectrum as well. And some of those are people they don't want to hurt. Freezing the cuts to income tax at the higher end is absolutely fine. But, you know, not increasing the tax-free allowances for people at the lowest level of income tax is also a problem for the Conservatives. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Alex, Robert and Miranda for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to see some more FT journalism, then please do take a look at our latest subscription offer, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer 50. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Harry Robertson. Until next time, thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.